Hi, welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Hello, this is Tom. Hey, it's Deacon Patrick. How are you, Patrick? It's another beautiful day, arguing with the uh, parish administrator and all that good stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tom and I don't argue anymore. No, I I go in, I was supposed to preach on a day, and the pastor comes in, and it was a guest priest, a visiting priest, and he said, well, he's not going to be here. I'm going to say the mass, and you're not preaching. (laughs) I said, hey, you don't put me on a preaching schedule. So then he tells me to take somebody else's schedule. I said, no, no. I said, I don't do that. So we're, we're just trying to get our schedule up. October schedule was published for our input October 3rd. (laughs) <laughs> I got to say, my parish does do this. The deacons all preach at least once a month, and the schedule is out two months, three months ahead of time. Yeah, they do Because that part. I think they, they realize that with the guys we have, and we have four deacons at our parish, people just say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm gone that weekend, or I got this to do, I got that. So yeah, it's, you, you don't want to be caught flat-footed. So if you want a plan, you got to give people a heads up, barring emergencies. But they do that very well at our place, and we preach. Once a month, and that's very can nice. I, but, can I get uh, the name of the person who does that so I can connect them with our parish people because they're having a time? And it's this is I taught high school for many years, and this is like high school. Yeah. And when you were in high school, there was teachers that you enjoyed their class. You enjoyed their teaching style, and your buddy liked this other teacher that you couldn't stand. And a lot of that is just they teach you that in uh, education classes about different learning and teaching styles. And if the teaching style matches your learning style, the nickel drops. But Bingo, no matter what you do, that's not yep. everybody in the class. So again, in the parish, mixing it up is the best favor you can do for people. Everybody does not need to hear me all the time. I am not everybody's cup of tea, and neither is anyone else. That's all I'm saying. It's a, This is just true for everybody. So the more, the merrier. you got options, you should, you're crazy not to take them in terms of effectiveness, I think of at mm-hmm. least hitting everybody once a month and with something they can relate to or enjoy or whatever. Yeah, we used to have a, a visiting priest every weekend because of the number of masses, and then we got a parochial vicar, so that stopped. <laughs> oh, we have five visiting priests every weekend. It's it's like we're at Disney World. Yeah, we've well, got a priest in residence, a pro- parochial vicar, and the pastor. So. Well, you got to remember, we're in Florida. you got a lot of retired priests down here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not yeah. hard at all. And again, no. if I'm the pastor, I'm thinking, this is great for the people. Let's increase yeah. the, the talent pool. Let's the, the style pool. We're, we're close I don't know to why Catholic you University. Take... Yeah. So you've got all, you've got we, we have a lot of around. clergy floating around this yeah. area. So you're in a similar position. Yeah, so yeah. why you wouldn't take advantage of that just baffles me. On the good news department, I got baptisms this week, actually. Oh, beautiful. This, yeah, Saturday. I'm very excited. I love baptisms. Baptisms yeah, yeah. and weddings is just yeah. the most fun you can have in ministry. I know? might have baptisms. I haven't seen the schedule yet. <laughs> <laughs> Let it go, Patrick. Yeah, Let yeah, it yeah, go. Yeah. You're so No, bitter. I'm serious. I might have them. Yeah. Oh, you had it last Saturday, last Sunday. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was already scheduled, and, and I missed it. Yeah. Too much. Who are we talking to today, Tom? Today we have Marilyn Santos, who is 
the Associate Director of Secretary of Evangelization and Catechesis at the United oh. States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Yeah, oh. she's a heavy hitter with That's an important the, job. Evangelization yeah. and religious education. Okay. Good for her. Yeah. 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 Uh, so One person. Yeah, it's, it used to that, be two offices. Now it's one office. Yeah. So, well, that's yeah. about a job for 20. Yeah, exactly. Really. Yeah. yeah, It's like when they say, oh, we have enough deacons here. I, my response is always, really? Has the kingdom come? Yeah. 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 Don't mind me. I'm a crank, as you know. So, you know, when we talked to Marilyn, it was a very good interview. She's a lovely lady. One of the things I just want to touch on for our listeners is that, of course, all of us nerded out and we're doing inside baseball talking about things and we uh, did not necessarily explain everything. We used acronyms, which you, anybody in a business or a, per, a profession does. They'll have things they'll say that they all shorthand that everybody knows. But if you're not in the business, you're like, what are they talking about? So I just want to touch on a few that she used or that I used or Tom or someone did. I just made some notes. She will talk about working for the USCCB. That's the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So that's the organization of all the bishops in, in the United States that come together and run these offices and try to raise the level of, say, faith, uh, say evangelization and, and religious education through Maryland's work and things like that. She also mentioned the RCIA, that she began her ministry there, which is the Rite of Christian Initiations of Adults. And that's basically the program you go into to either become a Catholic, if you're not baptized, or if you're a Catholic that never made your confirmation or First Communion or whatever, and it's an adult thing. It's not, they don't put you in with the kids for religious ed or whatever. Hey, Dennis, so, didn't we just change that acronym, though? Isn't it We did, yeah, now? but we're still calling it. You can, Habits yeah, it's OCIA. It's the, or, yeah, some places <laughs> it's the Order of Christian Initiation of Adults, because it's not the right is what you do in the church is steps along the way, but the whole thing is, yeah, so that's true. You might see it as OCIA, but she used the acronym RCIA, which is a, a great ministry, and if you're looking for something to get involved in, that's a great place to start in your parish. That is a gateway drug for ministry right there, RCIA or OCIA. It's a wonderful, personal, very moving, deep thing. She also mentioned the germ, and that's not germs like you. <laughs> get the sanitizer. Yeah, get the sanitizer. <laughs> this is G-I-R-M, which is the general instruction to the Roman Missal which are the rubrics for, for liturgy, for various, for sacraments, for, for mass, whatever, where it tells you what to do and what not to do. So she'll make a reference to the germ, and that's what she's talking about. So we got USCCB, RCIA, and germ, just so everybody can appreciate what she's saying, because she, she had a lot of wisdom, a lot of heart, mm. just a real, really fine human being, Marilyn. Very nice. Today, I am pleased to announce Marilyn Santos to our listeners. Ms. Santos is the Associate Director of the Secretariat of Evangelization and Catechesis at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Ms. Santos has held the position of Director of Mission Education in the National Office of the Pontifical Mission Societies in, in, the, in the United States. And she has also held leadership positions in youth, young adult, and cultural diversity ministries. 
in the Archdiocese of Atlanta, the Diocese of Brooklyn, and the Diocese of Wetuchin. Marilyn has served as president of LARED, the National Catholic de Pastoral Juvenile Hispana, as a consultant for the USCCB Secretary on Laity, Marriage, Family, and Youth. Marilyn served in Ecuador with the Volunteers in Development, Education, and Solidarity, or VIDES, a missionary program helping members of the Salesian family throughout the world promote social justice. Marilyn has also given presentations and workshops at multiple national and diocesan conferences, including those sponsored by the USCCB, National Catholic Education Association, National Community of Catechetical Leaders, National Federation of Catholic Youth Ministry, and Religious Education Congresses in L.A. and the Mid-Atlantic region. And that being said, and I'm out of breath, Marilyn, welcome to Deacon Pride. Thanks. You are a busy lady in uh, many ministries, and especially I'm very interested in all of them in your travels to Ecuador, working in mission territory. Great. I'm, I, I, whenever I hear the introduction, I get the first thing that pops into my mind is, I'm old. <laughs> but it's that, or people who hear that might think, that woman cannot get up. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, what, yeah. Pops, what pops into my mind is, what a slug I am when I hear <laughs> that. It's, like, it's like when someone speaks five languages, you know, those guys, and then you go, oh, I'm an idiot. Okay. Still yeah, back of the line people. for us, Dolan. Back of yeah. the line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no surprise. None of the nuns are surprised, Casey. I know, I know. They well, called it many years ago. <laughs> Tommy Casey, you're going to end up in prison. Uh, I thought of that when I walked. Didn't yeah. know you were going to be the chaplain, huh? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so, Marilyn, tell us with that, uh, Vita, tell us a little bit how your faith is, your faith life, how you got involved in. I actually, I'm, I guess, but we, the nomenclature, cradle Catholic, right? Born and raised in a Catholic family. So, I would say I never had a choice, but it was just always part of my. For as long as I can remember, it was just a part of the, the the fabric of who I am and what I was surrounded by as a young person, particularly my mom, which I know is pretty common, right? It's the mother. But and looking back at my life, I think the Lord obviously knew what the road he had for me and what he wanted for me, because I actually grew up with like priests around my dinner table. And so, it, which looking back, as I'm sure we all do, it all makes sense to me. My, uh, the local parish priest or the pastor, whatever, was, became friends of the family. So we they would be around. So I have grew up with a great respect, obviously in love, but also comfort. I'm really comfortable because I saw them as holistic. It wasn't just the man on the altar who celebrates mass or sacrament. This is also a human being who sat around the table drinking scotch and maybe smoking a cigar with my dad. And when we talked about things like movies and sports and all that, so... So just growing up around clergy is just something that is part of my nature. So it just, so my faith, it just, but I think like a lot of people, I actually, the Lord works in mysterious ways. It was thanks to born again Christian that I had what I now call my reconversion or maybe a better way of putting it is I took ownership of my own love for my faith. Freshman year in college, I'm sure the story is very common. I'm not unique. Was going to mass, but really wasn't what I would call an active Catholic. And my freshman year, these are great people that lived on my floor were part of a group. I think they were called the Navigators, and it was an uh, ecumenical board. 
And there was something about them that was just really attractive to me because they were nice, right? They were fun and they would do things like go whitewater rafting, et cetera, et cetera. So I started joining them in activities. We became good friends. Prayer was always created everything that they did just because they were people who were actively living a faith. And I really got drawn into it and really started thinking about God. But somewhere along the line, as much as I was enjoying my time, I was formally praying again, not just saying the prayers that like a parrot back at math. But it became apparent to me that something was missing. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew something was missing. And when I came home that year, actually, I came home for Christmas. I had not come home for Thanksgiving. I just wanted to go to mass. It wasn't just that my mother took, we went on Christmas Eve. I remember I actually went to a daily mass to my local parish, Epiphany Parish in, in Manhattan. And I remember sitting there and here I am all of barely 18 years old, got overwhelmed and started sobbing. And in that moment, it was really clear to me what was missing. And it was the mass, our, our Catholic Christian mass. And I wish I could say, but I'd be a liar. I didn't even verbalize Eucharist using that word, but what now I intimately know and love about the Eucharist, that's what was missing. So really, the rest, and then the rest is history. I became the, one of those sometimes overly ambitious, almost borderline obnoxious young adults who like wanted to do everything in the parish and back at home in our campus ministry. And anyway, so then it just makes it off with that, and I graduated with my undergrad. I started teaching, but I was always very actively involved at what volunteer was there and everywhere. The first formal ministry that I got involved in was RCIA, which was awesome because it really allowed me to re-religious educate myself, so to speak. So I really, and I'm, I guess I became a parish catechist and just blah, blah. Uh, I was a, a school teacher at that point. I worked at the Little Red Schoolhouse in New York. And then again, that, that juncture period in my life where I realized that I, I wanted to do more with the faith. So I actually um, took a leap of faith, stopped, stopped teaching full-time, and went back to Fordham University to get a degree, uh, a master's in elementary education, which was interesting, because even then, you know, you hear the whisper. Anyway, that happened, so, and then that's when the solutions came into my life. I was just about finished, and a neighbor said to me, um, you know, that the school on 12th Street, Mary Hubble Christians has helped me for a first grade teacher. Uh, are you looking to work again? And I did. I When I interviewed, I got the job. And again, the road again opened up again because being with the Salesians, the school was run by the sisters, but we had a parish. So we had the priest there as well, introduced me to the whole world um, youth and young adult ministry. So I, I faithfully uh, served there for about five years. And then the archdiocese decided to closed the school and the parish. So I found myself again at a, what do I do now, Lord? And then that's when I went and I spent the year and a half in Ecuador with the sisters doing the mission work. In the meantime, I had also gotten a certificate in youth ministry at that City Hall University. So when I came home looking for work again, at that point, the Diocese of Brooklyn was hiring. And again, but along all along the way, as well as I was getting, I guess, what I would call head formation and because then I went back to Fordham for a master's in, in religious education. It was really the people that I met that helped my faith deepen. And I, because when I was challenged, when young people would come to me with some questions or say, this is what I don't like about the faith, I didn't have an answer. I, I didn't have an answer. And not that I ever will have all the answers, but it's really been this faith journey 
And here I am X amount of years later. I won't give away my age, but I'm 58 years old. I'm going to, I'm going to own it. And just pretty much have worked for the Catholic church in, in one shape or form my entire life. And, and my faith definitely has been challenged, but I know when I've come through those challenges, it's strength and it's really deep. And so that's, that's who I am. I love the Lord. And I actually really do love the Catholic church. And just because I love it, it doesn't mean that sometimes it doesn't make me angry. Boy, well said. I'm just wondering because with that kind of hands-on experience and with that kind of dedication and, and zeal, right? It seems to me like when you start working in an organization like the USCCB, you give up the hands-on and you go into the cerebral. Is that true? Is that a true statement? Or are you still as active dealing with especially the youth and, and the Hispanic ministry? And That's actually a great question. I remember when I left, I guess what you would call the hands-on, which because even in diocesan work, I still did direct ministry, as we call it. I did a lot of praying and discerning, and it just felt right. And I don't feel like I've made a mistake. So while on the one hand, I'm not directly uh, ministering or accompanying people in the pews, as we would say, I do still find, I find, I get the opportunity to work with diocesan directors who are also on faith journeys. And I work on the national front. Again, this is what the Lord wants me to do, because while I'm not actually leading a youth group, let's say, I do get the opportunity because of some of the initiatives of the USCCB. Last summer, we had one called Journeying Together, which was a young adult initiative. Original vision and was accomplished was to bring young adults from all the different ethnic, cultural diversity in the world, in the, I'm sorry, in the country together. And I was very much a part of that team. So I, I do, I, I had to sit at a desk and just answer emails all the time. It wouldn't work for me. And, and it's interesting that right before COVID, I actually did lead, at the USCCB will do staff development and workshops. And I actually led one with a partner and the title of it that we came up with is working for the USCCB still ministry. Because it's an excellent question because sure. a lot of us ask ourselves that question. A lot of people ask us that question. Is it just become now administrative and bureaucratic? And luckily I can't speak for every single 200, almost 300 plus staff at the conference, but I know for me, I still get a chance to actually actively engage and it's not just um, writing reports. And then it, I feel I get to engage with real people. And I, But the other half of it, I think that helped me keep my faith alive where I feel like I'm actually um, doing ministry is I'm very active in my parish. Ah. And that's great. And a must for me, I can't just be a person in the pew, even though sometimes it's nice to be invisible, but I, so I'm different committees. I'm actually finishing out a term as parish council. I ran the synod for my parish. And that's important for me because then I can just be Maryland the Catholic and mm. not Maryland the USCCB staff person. Nice, nice. Were you able to go or heck, you had, do you have feedback on the World Youth Day since we got, what, a million kids? A young yeah, adult? no, yeah, I was there. Yeah, I'm, I'm part of the USCCB team. So we were there and it was a million and, yeah, 1.5. 1. 5. It's actually my ninth World Youth Day. Well, because I'm a little tough. crazy. I yeah. <laughs> uh, no, and that's know always four years, yeah. No, and that that's always an amazing experience. I actually started going on the USCCB team before I even worked there. They they brought me on as extra staff. I think that started in Madrid when it was in Madrid, and so I, I you know I've experienced it. I I led a group when I was working with the Salesians, so that was parish work. When I moved into diocesan work, I would oversee the diocesan group. 
And now I jokingly say that it's the true and it's actually pledged all very different experiences. And, and now our delegation, our pilgrims are the bishop. And, and so all three audiences are very different, but they certainly all uh, have been really, they're really good and really interesting. It, it, for me, it's really an opportunity. You know, the bishops who tend, we had, I think we had over 30 something with us this year. The bishops who tend to sign up for World Youth Day, they know what they're signing up for. So they're the ones who will roll with the punches and, and will be really flexible. So it's really nice to see them in an environment where they are just eating up the opportunity to just talk to young people, walking down the street, nobody preparing questions ahead of time. It just, it, it's really, I feel very privileged to be able to bless, to, to witness that. Sure, sure. Well, so what's the feedback for the American young adults who were there? What do you see happening with the energy that comes out of something like that and coming back to the parishes? Do you have a sense of that pulse? It's actually, it's a point of contention, not just with me, with my colleagues. It's not the young people because they go there and even the ones that don't go there um, on fire for the faith, because some of them go chance to see another country and that's fine. But the majority of them, even those that went there because it was a chance to see another country, they are on fire. It's those of us back home or quote unquote the leadership that, and some places are doing a great job, but I would say overall, we're still failing on capitalizing on that enthusiasm and making space for young people in leadership roles in our parishes and in our diocese and even in some of our organizations. So they come home on fire and then it quickly fizzles out. And I would dare say the majority, not because of the young people themselves, but because those that are in the position to allow them to step up and, and take leadership um, don't make that stay. So that's something that we, again, I mentioned this journey together last summer. I think one of the reasons that we were so proud that was successful is that while it was USCCV initiative sponsored, et cetera, et cetera, at this point, there's a core group. I think there's about 25 of them and they come from all the different ethnic groups that are in this country as much as humanly possible. They've taken it over in a good way. So really the USCCV has stepped back as far as being a resource to them, but it's this group of young people that are really continuing to meet and plan gatherings. And I know for the revival, we reached out to them and they acted, they had, they were consultants for us. So it's things like that, that need to happen more where we just let them take over with support because I yep. think it, to not support them would be equally uh, unfair and unjust because then I'm setting them up for failure, but... Yeah, so world. I'm, obviously I've been there nine times, so I believe in World Youth Day. And I think we're getting better at it, but we still need to um, do a much better job of what happens after. Um, I think that's key. I think yeah. what you, you just gave a sign of hope there with that, recognizing that the young adult leadership itself is developing and, and, mm -hmm. and has some energy because there's nothing worse than coming back from any organization, mm -hmm. planning sessions, meetings about yay, rah, rah, and then, no carry through, no uh, vision of where to go with that. So that's great. Well, listen, let me just jump in on that. Uh, that is a regular problem on every level in the church uh, for everything, every initiative. When, I can't remember the last time I heard evangelization. For a hot minute there, boy, that was the bandwagon. And of course, like you, I went to religious ed masters, only Boston College. I went to the other Jesuit school up the road. And 
pretty much like you bounced from this to that. Oh, I lost my job. Oh, where am I going to work? What God, is this a joke? Where do you have the whole thing you just described? And I've seen many of these. It's just, this is like one of the fundamental faults of the church as an organization. Even when things do happen, there's just no follow through. It just dies and withers. I've seen all kinds of things on a parish level, on a diocesan level. It's just, this is the worst thing we do. And we get people involved and then we say, okay, see you later. I've seen it done with lay ministry in our home diocese for a while. That was the biggest thing going. I used to teach in the thing and we had all these lay ministers. We had nowhere for them to go. And then you run into the clericalism that the Pope is so right about. And of course, Father doesn't want anybody. Says, no, we're good here because we're on maintenance because there is no evangelization. As we hemorrhage membership, it's, yeah, no, we're good here. So yeah, no, I just think that is a key thing for everything. And I suspect that the Pope might be right that maybe clericalism just crowds out everything else. No, we got this. I'm glad you had a nice Crescio. Go away. <laughs> I just see it all over. It just seems to be yeah. like original sin. So I just wanted to jump in on that. Is that your experience too? Yes and no. And this is where the, when I work not just with Latinos, but I with the diversity piece, is that there are a lot of people sitting in their parishes that aren't being invited to the table. Um, and it tends to be the, for lack of a better, non-Euro-American. And, but I wanted to speak to the enabling piece as well. One of the things that we can help our brothers and sisters, because I'm talking more first-generation Latin America. I've seen it with a lot of the Asian communities. They are still very much in that mode is that Padrecito is the second coming. <laughs> uh, and, and it's a cultural thing. And we have to be very gentle of how we approach that. We just don't tell people you're wrong and that's stupid. But there is a, an accompanying it in a formation that we need to, you know, and our younger people, again, our young adults are getting that more because they're growing up in this environment, in this culture, that it's okay to challenge father. You don't just go along with every decision that he made because he happens to have the collar or be the pastor. So I, I see that working on it. But to the other point about you saying that the reason that it's the same people, I would say yes, with the caveat that it's also that we need to be, to look a little bit more closely at who is actually in our parishes and are we really going deep, going to the deep and looking for, because all these communities have by default leaders. They may not be have the title, but if you look at any community, whether it's a community of young people, a Bangla community, a French-speaking African country, certain people just naturally assume leadership. And that's who we need to look out. Let's find those people and invite them to the table to be leaders for the, whether it's an organization or a parish. Because I, I do, I, I used to do some consultation when I was in the diocese and father would say to me, uh, nobody wants to do this, especially with catechists. And then I would say, well, well, Crystal, how are you recruiting? Where are you asking? And this one particular parish says, I will remain nameless to protect the innocent. The announcement for catechists were only being made at the English-speaking masses. It's like it never, and again, I, don't, I, I have to believe it wasn't coming from a bad place. It's just this lack of awareness that somebody has to just point out to other people. It, well, Father, did you ever consider making that announcement at the Spanish mass? We, we need to really look and see who, who um, when we say we're asking everybody and nobody's saying yes, you know what I wanted to ask you? Another thing, on just on because it's related on the World Youth Day. 
No, I'm an evangelization guy. So, well, we all are. We're Paulist. So, I think World Youth Day is great. But all I can think of, and God forgive me for being the dog in the manger, all I can think of is this is what percentage of the people we have baptized in this cohort. It's, it's great. Five million people. It's great. And again, we don't, we don't do enough with the publicity of that. That's an accomplishment. I'm not knocking that. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking of the 200 million that wouldn't be caught dead, who we baptized and made their first communion. I just wonder, does anybody in up in the up, upper echelons and the rarefied air of our leadership, do, are they aware of that? Or do they just think, well, this is great. A million kids, we're all set. We're getting it done. Or do they ever go, that's not a big group for us. I can't speak internationally, but I can certainly speak a little bit to it nationally. Are we aware of it? Yes. And I know when I was in the diaspora work, it was always a tension for me that the amount of time of my work time that I would put into organizing this, recognizing that less than 5% of the young people in the diocese of Brooklyn were going to go was always a tension for me. I know that um, one thing that we did there and I real and I've noticed more dioceses are doing now is um, doing things that are stateside in recognition that the majority of, you know, what 1.5 million, as you said, that was internationally. I think from the U.S., Oh, I forget the exact number. I think we had about 3,000. That's nothing, right? What is that? Not even 1%. So I hear what you're saying. So I specifically the World Youth Day, I know that a lot more effort is being put into celebrating it stateside as well. But the larger evangelization piece is being very much spoken about. I know certainly at our level, obviously it's part of my, half of the name of my department. And what I am saying, which Obviously, I, I makes me happy. Is and and the director for catechesis, the new one, and even though it's three years old, at one point I'm going to stop calling it the new one. I think it is the best, most beautiful gift that the, that Rome has given the church in a long time. I, if you're not familiar with it, it it properly places catechesis where it belongs. That the overarching of what we're called to do, not just as um, Paulus, but as baptized people to be evangelizers. So it, it, it's still called the director for catechesis because I think that if we had changed the name, people would have gotten confused, wouldn't have realized. But if we, when you read it, it just properly places that it's all about evangelization and that it has to start with this encounter and just introducing people into this loving God that came to earth in the person of, of Jesus. And that takes time. And not everybody's on the same timeline. And it's once that person falls in love, like us as human beings, right? When you fall in love with something or someone, two things naturally happen. The first is I want to be around that person all the time. And the second thing is I want to know everything about that person. And then that's where the catechesis piece comes in. That's where you start sharing and the directory points, classroom, these are my words, I'm paraphrasing, but basically the classroom model, very bad, actually. So really, the directory is really re-pointing us because I don't think this is anything new of anything. I think we're going backwards, but it's a good thing, right, to the early church, which was just 
gathering with people as people and then forming, making community. And what's that old Tim and Demo, we're Christians by our love? Yeah. You know, that, it might be a corny little song, but that's what it's about. It's not filling people's heads with all these facts that, you know, and yes, some of those facts are important because it's, it's the tenets of our faith and our belief, but you don't lead with that. And certainly that's not the most important. Right. At no point is that the most important thing. No. So, and I think the wake up call, one of the, the blessings that I told Francis is that he's helping us reawaken this awareness that at the end of the day, we're all called to be evangelizers, whether I'm a deacon, whether I'm a lay person, whether I'm a cop, whether I'm a lawyer, whether I'm a softball coach, you know, if I'm really living my faith, I'm called to just, by my by my actions and my words. Yeah. Just, yeah, I, no, I, and I get that. And again, as a religious education guy, been honing my shovel a long time. And the way I got into evangelization is I said, these kids are pagans. They'll pass the test. I was teaching Catholic high schools. Exactly. It's like, they, they'll, they'll pass the test because they don't graduate without it. But I'm starting to realize this is not moving the needle. These people are not disciples. And I didn't even, and this is 76, so 1976. So I did not even have any words. The word evangelization, I came across when Jim DiGiacomo and Walsh, the Marinola, what was his first name? I don't remember. But anyways, they had a high school series on called evangelization. Mm. And I'm like, what the heck is this? And I read it and I said, this, this is what I'm trying to find. Because I kept saying, well, let me try the other book. How about this book? Maybe <laughs> this is the book. And it's, the book's not going to do it, to your point, Marilyn. Right. If the book is not going to do it. And I went and found James DiGiacomo, SJ, in New York. He taught, he, he spent his career as a Jesuit teaching high school kids. So this was his thing. And the guy he worked with was a married old missionary. And I had lunch with him. I sat down and said, explain this to me. Because this is, and that's how I got into evangelization. Because it isn't about facts. We can mug and jug this all you want and fill people's heads with stuff. That's not love. That's not how it works. So. Yeah, and we all need to do it. What is your take on the state of evangelization in this country? How many people get what you just said? Okay, well, obviously, well, maybe because I'm immersed in it. I, I don't think anybody is in the under illusion to say, oh, we're knocking it out of the park. I think anybody who would make that claim as a blanket statement is not in touch with reality. Are there certain pockets? Uh, are there certain dioceses of some of the ap apostolic movements? Some of the religious orders are doing amazing things, but it's, I think it, it's regional, it's, it's piecemeal, but, I, but collectively as a nation, and this is one that I would even go as far as saying globally, no, nobody's hitting it out of the park. I'm curious as to see now that the first round of the Synod is coming soon to an end. I don't know if you read the other day what, the, what Pope Francis did put out there. And hopefully one of the fruits of this will be people to real focus on the evangelization piece. And that evangelization is not, capital N-O-T, is not look at me, listen to me, and do everything that I do. Because I think some of our leaders out there, that's the, you know, the, the encounter a company model, that's what they think it is. That it come follow me and do everything exactly the way I do. And that's not what accompanying somebody is. So... I could say, I, I do think that one of but, the areas that we as a church don't 
work as best as we can are some of these apostolic movements. Because some of them are really attracting young people by the drone. And there's something going on there, whether it's 100% in line with whatever your ecclesiology is. That's important to look at. But I think the first thing we need to look at is, but some they're doing something right. Right. Because they are attracting a young and old, all ages, all colors, all races. So where, Marilyn, where do you uh, find hope? What gives me hope is I, I am privy, as you would say, to sit in meetings with the Hamilton thing, the room where it happened, so to speak. And I guess what gives me hope is that while I'm, no, I'm n- never would say that they're all perfect, and I don't necessarily agree what what they all say. What I would say is that the vast majority of our bishops, they've got incredible hearts. And they really love the church and want what's best. And and I see it over and over again. And sometimes the Lord humbles me because it'll be somebody that I have such opposite opinions and I'll leave it at that. And then I will see them and witness and hear them with these eyes and these ears say something that is just so incredibly kind that it, it's just a reminder for me that we just have to be open to that. that that gives me hope. I think what I'll, what gives me hope is that the staff or leadership at the conference was for um, Father Michael Filler and Father Paul Hartman, you know, we call him the Secretary General. There's a real openness. There's a hierarchy just because of position, but they made it really clear, and it's not just with words, but with action, that they look for interaction and feedback from staff. And it, and it was, it's not always that way. So that gives me hope that I don't feel like I'm just clocking in and clunking out. And no matter what I say, it's never going to make a difference. So that gives me hope. And some of my, and my, some of my colleagues give me hope. Just on, on Wednesday, there's something called building intercultural competence. And it's something that the Bishop's Conference came up with um, about 12 years ago. And it's supposed to be a two-day training. It's now, it's um, a requirement for all new staff. We give them a snapshot. It's only two and a half hours, and I'm one of the trainers. And the group on Wednesday, there are about 25 new employees. Not only were they young, but it is the most diverse ethnically group that I've seen in a long time. So, so that gives me hope, you know, that the powers that be, so to speak, are recognizing the need for staff and not just, and by staff, not just people working in general services, not just the people that keep the building looking nice for us, but staff or assistant directors, decision makers, policy makers, there's a growing diversity there. And again, not just ethically, but uh, ecclesiology. We're not all cut from the same cloth. So, so that gives me hope. That, that gives me a lot of hope. To the point about the PR, I have never, ever seen anybody say, we know the largest department at the USCCB, and by largest, three times the size of the rest of us, is Migrogen and Refugee Services. Mm. They have over 30 people on staff. And we don't hear about that. And they're doing stuff oh. from placement. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the, the bishops, because they're the ones who have to vote and yeah. authorize that these positions, um, they're three times the size of any other department. So that gives me hope. If you knew someone who was thinking of no longer going to Mass, what would you say to them to give them hope? I don't think there's one answer, and, and maybe that's why we got ourselves in trouble, that we think that there's one 
formula or there's one box, one size fits all answer to give to people when they are struggling, whether it's the faith or going to mass or not going to mass anymore. In our minds, we know what's quote unquote right. So we have the prepackaged answer instead of taking the time to ask them why they're not going. And, and then the other thing I guess I would respond is um, be very empathetic and say, um, I've been there too. I've had my moments where I'm struggling, whether with staying in the faith or getting up on Sunday morning to go to mass and I'd rather go to the baseball game. So I, I think it would be to empathize, but really more is to just try to listen to see why they're not. And then, and sharing my story. Perhaps, um, well, this is when I wasn't sure whether because of this or that, I wasn't going to go to mass. What did I do? Well, I talked to people. I prayed, believe it or not. Something I think that, I, that's another thing that I think as Catholics, we don't talk enough about prayer and reading the, and reading the scripture and, and, just, and just maybe invite the person to accompany me to go with me to mass. My answer would depend on the individual and why they're not going to go to Mass. If you knew someone who had stopped going to Mass and they were thinking about coming back, what would you say to them? Uh, I'm so glad that you're opening yourself up and that you're willing to come to Mass. Again, I would offer to, depending on if we happen to live close by or same state or whatever, I think I would offer to, to go with them, with him or her. So if they, are, they do have questions, if, if they've been, especially if, I do have had this happen with my sister, who had stopped going to Mass before the new translation, and then she had her reconversion and went back to math after the new translation. And I was so glad that I was there with her, not just because it was fun, but that after math, um, it gave us something to talk about, right? So I, I guess I would offer to go with them, encourage them, maybe even not to be discouraging, but to just a word of warning or not, just to say every parish has a different culture, a different flavor. Sometimes even you look to see what the different masses are in the parish. Then maybe there's one there that will speak to you more. If it's a gospel mass or if it's that. So just really remind them that for me, one of the things that I like about being Catholic, particularly with the liturgy, is that it comes in many different flavors um, and that all of them are 100% liturgically still Catholic. There's room for diversity. I wouldn't want that person to go back to a mass that really didn't speak to them and think, well, they're all the same. So I tried it, and it's not for me. Our podcast is about these threshold people. Are we on the right thing here? I think so, because it's, the, the, the cinema I would use for threshold would be seekers. These are people who obviously are feeling this, this innate calling, this need, right? Like St. Augustine, right? My heart is restless till I rest in you. So I think threshold is a great word for it. I think you definitely, these are the people that you should look into accompanying them, but again, realizing that there's no one-size-fits-all model. It takes time. Listening, listening is really the first step, and then, um, and then offering to accompany them. What are their questions? What are their doubts? What do they like? And then lean into that more. But I, I do think that there's a lot of people out there hungering for some, a deeper connection. If a pastor of a medium-sized suburban parish asked you to give him a pointer or two on how to help his parish, what advice would you give him? The number one thing would be hospitality. My, my second one on my list would be look to see who, take a census, who, who, who are your parishioners? 
who are your parishioners? Because once, if you know who your people are, then you're planning with them, not for them. I think music might be up there. And I'm going to say the word reverence for the liturgy. But when I say reverence, I don't mean that we're all on our knees and like this all time and really quiet and you can, and, you, and heaven forbid you smile. But just to maybe the word is a depreciation and that for the, the beauty and that every time we celebrate the mass, we should all have a sense of awe about it. Sometimes the, the, the fourth one would be is look at your faith formation program. Um, who are your catechists and what does, does your program actually fit the needs of who the parents are nowadays? Maybe Wednesdays at four doesn't work because nowadays most people two parent homes or single families. So I would say look to see the formation program. Maybe, and then the fifth one would be what are you offering for the community outside of the mass? And outside of faith formation, do you host events? Do you create initiatives that will help to build community, whether it's a parish festival or whatever works because you're a mid-sized little parish or mid-sized parish? So yeah, I would say those are the, the, the top five, but hospitality is definitely the top. Well, all these things come down to the experience of love, whether it's the liturgy or any of these issues. That's the reason you care. You have reverence for the mass or the other things we talked about because you have some concept of who God is. Forget Mass. There's people who have no reverence for God. It's difficult to tell people to reverence their brother and see God in them when they don't reverence God to begin with. So That's right. In love with God, in love with their faith, in love with their community. Marilyn Santos, thank you for joining us today on Deacon's Pod. Thank you. I really enjoyed being here. Have a blessed day. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulist Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacon's, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.